You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious reminder this morning that though all hell may endeavor, may work to dismantle your purposes, they will fail because your purposes will never fail. The work of our enemy to tear down your kingdom and your work and the work of your spirit to bring glory to your name and to spread your glory across the world will indeed fall short because you cannot be thwarted. So thank you for this reality. And would you lift our eyes and our hearts to this glorious truth that you in your beautiful and glorious sovereignty are accomplishing your purposes and you're doing it through simple, broken vessels that you've gathered together, that you have justified, that you are in the process of sanctifying, that you are fashioning into your people. We ask that as we open your word this morning that your spirit would be at work in us, continuing to do that work in us. Give us hearts and minds that are ready to receive from your word this morning. And would you receive our worship? Because you are indeed worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, River City. We're glad to be with you today. Um, We get to open a new book of the Bible to study for a few weeks. Um, I don't know how many of you have studied the book of Philemon before, but that's where we're going to be. It's one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon, and yes, that's how you pronounce it. We talked about this in community group this week. Um, There are lots of ways you may have thought. I'm just going to encourage you, that's how it is. Um, If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up, and someone from our strike team will be coming around, and they can get you one. You can read along, uh, follow along. Um, You'll notice uh, there are no chapter markings, because it is literally one chapter broken up into, for our purposes of study, 25 verses. Um, So Philemon can be found directly after, in your Bibles, uh, Paul's letter to Titus, and right in front of the book of Hebrews. So if you're thumbing through your New Testament and you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far, go back a page, and there it should be. Um, On my Bible, it's it's literally one, one page. This is it, right here. One page. 25 verses long, and is the shortest letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. And although Paul doesn't, in the book of Philemon, introduce um, any new or, or even really make like deep theological arguments, right? You think of a book like the book of Romans, where Paul has like sentences that are like a page, and he's trying to unpack the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God for the church. Here in Philemon, he doesn't He doesn't do that. However, in these 25 verses, there is a richness 
There's a, there's a richness of gospel application here in Philemon that I, I want us to discover together. Be, because it's small, it's, it's often forgotten. If, if you have Philemon on a Bible reading plan, almost guaranteed it is a like one-day read. Like it shows up in your Bible reading plan as you're reading through the entire New Testament and they're like, you know, Corinthians chapters one through three or something. And then when you get to Philemon, it's like Philemon one day and then you move on. And so we're just not going to do that. We're going to at least take a couple of days to go through it, a couple of Sundays. But let me just give you a little background on the letter. My introduction this morning is a little longer, but, but hopefully that'll be helpful. So as I already said, the Apostle Paul is the author and he tells us, just the same right away in the greeting. We'll see it in a little bit. And he's writing as a prisoner. Now, scholars, biblical scholars, have have made a couple of uh, possible ideas as to where Paul was when he wrote this, because Paul was in prison on more than one occasion. So it would be different if he was only in prison once. You're like, we know when that was written. Um, Paul was in prison a couple of different times. Um, In this case, It's very likely this letter was written around the same time as the letter to Colossians, which I'll explain in a minute why we know that or think that, and the letter to Ephesians, which would likely put it during the time when one of the times that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Again, Paul got into trouble a lot for the sake of Jesus, and and as as you study him, you'll find that out. Now, this letter, unlike the letter to the church in Ephesus, which was written to the church or the the book of Colossians, which is written to the entire church in the city of Colossae. In this case, it's specifically written to a person. Now, in the end of the letter, he also addresses other people, so it wasn't meant to be private. It was meant to be communicated a little more broadly within the church, but it's directed to one man, and that's Philemon. Now, Philemon was a member of the church in Colossae. So the book of Colossians and this letter to Philemon are deeply connected. If you want a suggested Bible reading over the next couple of weeks for some uh, added study for you, go through and kind of slow read Colossians for a couple of weeks as we're studying Philemon. You'll get a little context into the, the church life of the man that this letter is written to. And in fact, it's very likely that the letter to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, and this letter Philemon were delivered at the exact same time. Uh, we, we know from the book of Colossians that a man named Tychicus is the delivery errand boy, if you will, of Paul to the church to say, I have a letter for you from Paul, Colossians. Here it is. Also, Philemon, I have this for you. So that's essentially what, what we have here. The Apostle Paul has delivered, has written two letters to you. Here, this one's for you, the church, and Philemon, this one's directly for you, which may have actually been a little bit of a shock to Philemon because everyone knew who Paul was, right? Paul was very well known at this time, but we don't have any indication that Paul and Philemon were like best buds or knew each other very well. By reputation, for sure, they knew each other, but we aren't completely sure the depth of that relationship. Now, a couple other things about Philemon. We have evidence that Philemon was a man of significant wealth who has come to faith in Jesus, likely under the discipleship of a man named Epaphras, who's the founding pastor of the church in Colossae. So when Philemon comes to faith in Jesus, everything about his life changes. 
everything. A man of great wealth, he now begins to use his riches to serve the Lord by serving the church. And from what we know, although he's deeply involved in the life of the church at Colossae, Philemon is not an elder or a pastor. He is just a faithful member of the church using his gifts to serve the Lord. Now that might seem insignificant, but but don't lose that part. And because the first century church often met in homes, we're told that the church in Colossae met in Philemon's home, likely across his estate, if he was indeed wealthy, like we believe him to be. Philemon opened up his probably pretty large home, and the church met there. As you can imagine, Philemon, man of great wealth, man of great means, likely would have utilized all of his resources to serve the church. So he probably provided for the church in Colossae out of his own pantry, his own storehouses, his own barns, his own vineyards, supplied the bread and the wine. The the church, as they gathered, were likely served by the servants, the people, the men and women who worked in Philemon's home, in his estate. His servants served not just him, but all of his guests, in this case, when the church gathered. And as we look at this book, we'll we'll see this central kind of social relationship we're dealing with is one of master and servant, specifically master and servant. Slave. Now, something really helpful here, and we'll get into it more next week, but to kind of set the stage in the context, there were various kinds of slavery and servitude in the ancient Near East. Lots of varieties. Some was very exploitive. And you can go all the way back to the book of Exodus, where the Hebrew people were enslaved. That's the word that we read, enslaved in Egypt. They're living under the cruel hand of a wicked pharaoh. And this kind of slave labor... Harsh slave labor has been employed, excuse me, pretty regularly throughout human history. Pretty regularly. And was in practice even here in the first century. Nations conquered nations and took slaves as their reward. And God has some pretty harsh words of condemnation in his word about humans taking humans. Humans putting others into cruel subjection underneath them. God actually calls it sinful and wicked. And in fact, even in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul lists in his list of those who are wicked, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he lists among the wicked those who enslave others as as those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's talking about there is the subjugation of people. But that's not the only kind of servanthood, master-servant, master-slave relationship that we see in history and is happening in the first century. In fact, there was a pretty common master-servant or master-slave relationship that looked a little bit more like employee-employer than the man-stealing and the chattel slavery of the transatlantic slave trade from our Western history that we're most familiar with and conscious of. In many cultures including here in the first century, Near East, there were provisions made as part of a support for those who were unable to support themselves. I mean, think for a second. There's no social security in the first century Near East. There's no 
meal at the local Salvation Army for those who are experiencing hunger. There's no new life shelter for those who don't have a home. And so if you were, for whatever reason, unable to support yourself in a culture like this, you could very practically, I'm going to use this word, sell yourself as a laborer to someone else. And in some cases, you might be a servant in a house or in a, at an estate of your master virtually indefinitely, but in other cases, you can enter into a, a contract of sorts. And in fact, under Hebrew law, under the law of Moses, there were actually provisions for this for the care of people that after a certain period of time, you'd be released. No questions asked. Now, we're not actually going to meet him yet in our text because we're only going to read through verse 7 today. But when we get into verse 10, we'll meet a man named Onesimus. And that's the, that's the relational conflict we're going to be looking at over these next three, three weeks. There's a man named Philemon who the letter is written to, and it's primarily about this other man, Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave, a servant of Philemon. And we'll find out that Onesimus had fled the house of his master. He'd fled from the service of Philemon and possibly even stole from him as he left. If indeed Paul is writing from Rome, we don't have to do the math, we don't have to get out the maps, but Colossae and Rome are not close, particularly if you travel by foot. So it's likely that Onesimus even took from Philemon in order to fund his escape, if you will, and likely to go to Rome because you could hide in Rome. It would be easy to hide in Rome. Thus, there's this conflict now in this letter that fuels the need for reconciliation and forgiveness. We'll talk about specifically about Onesimus more next week, but after he flees, apparently by a hand of the sovereign move of God, Onesimus meets the apostle Paul at some point while Paul's in prison, and Onesimus has an encounter with the living God and becomes a disciple of Jesus which is pretty cool. So here we have a letter from Paul to Philemon, and he only isn't, he's not only sending back a letter, hey, I've written this letter to you, Philemon, with Tychicus. By the way, there's lots of good baby names in this book. Philemon, Tychicus, Onesimus. We'll get into it, right? Not only is he sending back a letter with Tychicus, but standing behind Tychicus in front of Philemon is Onesimus. Paul has sent him back to his, his former master to say, now that you're both followers of Jesus, we got some business to do so that you might be reconciled, not merely reconciled as master and servant, but reconciled now as brothers. Now, that's a, a long introduction, but I want to set the stage for us as we spend a few weeks here in this book. So today is just going to be part one of three in these 25 Verses, this beautiful little book. And we're going to kind of break it up this way. Verses 1 through 7 we'll look at today. I want to lay the, the groundwork, the context for reconciliation. Next week, we'll talk about the call. This is the charge that Paul is giving to Philemon, by extension to the church in Colossae, by extension to us, based on who you are now, this is what you're called to do. And then we'll close the letter. Actually, uh, one of our other elders, Josh Waite, will be talking about this commitment now to live reconciled and the, 
the advocate that Paul is on behalf of Onesimus. So today we're just going to look at the first few verses, but we're going to read, because there's only 25 of them, we're going to read all 25 verses all three weeks. And so my encouragement to you, this is not the Lord, just me, my encouragement to you is, every day this week, at least once, in the morning, in the evening, maybe both, open up Philemon, read it. I'm a slow reader. Really slow, it doesn't take me that long. Okay. So let's read it together here. Uh, it should be on the screen as well. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read all 25 verses, and then we'll zero in just on the first few. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, uh, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word for us today. Now, as I said, we're, we're only going to look at the first few verses today, and there's, and maybe you haven't read it yet, but... As you are, maybe you're realizing there's a lot more going on here than maybe you thought in 25 verses. We're just going to look at verses really 1 through 7 today. 
Paul gives a little greeting, and then he gives an encouragement. So when I say the context for reconciliation, here's what I mean. Today we're really not going to talk about reconciliation or forgiveness at all, but I'm, I'm hoping we can lay some, some groundwork. We're going to pour a little foundation, if you will, so that when we get to reconciliation and forgiveness next week, it has something to stand on. In these first seven verses, Paul is building a foundation. He's almost pre-answering a question that Philemon might ask when he sees Onesimus standing in front of him. Why? Why should I forgive this man who wronged me? And so Paul's kind of preemptively building out a context for not only what makes reconciliation between two people possible, what makes forgiveness and restored relationship possible, but what makes it proper for brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul is starting with the why before he talks about the what. The what is forgiveness, living in reconciled relationship. But Paul says, before I get there, I want to tell you why. And here's the why. That if you are in Christ Jesus, everything changes. Everything. Period. And that's what I want us to consider today. It's not just some of our beliefs that are changed when we come to believe the gospel by faith. It's not just that some of our actions are changed. It's not just that some of our old habits die off. Praise Jesus that they do. It isn't just that some of our motives and desires are changed when we encounter the living God, when we believe the gospel. It isn't only those things. Everything about us is transformed. And in this letter, Paul says that the gospel changes everything, including how we relate to one another. So the question I want us to ask is this. Because of the gospel of Jesus, for those who have faith in Jesus, who would claim Jesus as Lord, what is different now in us? And the short answer I want us to be able to give is, well, everything but the longer answer and our big idea from these first seven verses is this, that by faith in Christ Jesus, we are completely transformed. And now everything about us conforms, is shaped to our new identity in Christ. Let me say that again. That's a long sentence. By faith in Christ Jesus, we are completely transformed. And now everything about us conforms to our new identity in Christ. Now, there's lots of things that are now true about us if we are indeed in Christ Jesus. There's two that I want to highlight from this passage. Our new identity in Christ means that, one, we are one in Christ Jesus, and two, that it is God who's at work in us by faith. Like I said, there's lots of things now, benefits, if you will, about a transformed identity. Here's two from Philemon that we are one in Christ and that God is at work in us by faith. So there's what I mean in the first one, that we are one in Christ Jesus. If indeed we are completely transformed, which means that our previous identity as a purely independent, autonomous individual 
now must conform to a shared identity as a people together. That's what I mean when I say we are one in Christ Jesus, that in Christ, each one of us is now a part of an us. And this, I think, we see in all of these seven verses in small ways. Look, look at the uh, verse one with me. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he gives himself a descriptor, Paul, a prisoner. In, in other of Paul's letters, he often says, Paul, an apostle. In fact, in Colossians chapter one, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I think it sounded kind of ad ominous, right? Here he doesn't say that. He writes, Paul, a prisoner. He's still an apostle, but he's not emphasizing that. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Keep reading. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now, Aphia and Archippus are likely Philemon's family, his wife and his son, respectively, members of his household, members of the church. Verse 3, grace to you and peace. This is a pretty common greeting from Paul. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see what I see, saw in those first three verses? How many times Paul uses the word our When he's talking to and about Philemon and his family, this is not a mistake. Paul is making a pretty significant and important emphasis. He's saying, Philemon, in Christ Jesus, you and I are one. We are brothers. We are equal before God. Your family is my family. We share the same mission. We are fellow workers. Your son, in his likely boldness, is a soldier for Christ. We have the same Father and the same Lord. And this is a key gospel reality. Don't don't miss this. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 to a group of Gentiles just like Philemon. And there was once a time when you Gentiles were on the outside of God's people looking in, Ephesians chapter 2. But now, Paul writes, as a Jew by birth who is now a follower of Christ, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one, Paul writes in Ephesians, and has broken down in his flesh, that means by his crucifixion, the dividing wall of hostility that stood between us by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is putting Ephesians 2 into practice with Philemon and saying, there is no hostility between us. You and I are one in Christ. One. And if we really drill down on this, this has remarkably far-reaching implications for so much conflict and division that we see around us even today. 
particularly among those who would claim to be followers of Jesus. If Christians truly saw ourselves as new creations and we considered all other Christians, all other followers of Jesus as new creations, that we truly are one together, one body, how might that change the way we interact? How might that change the way we see one another? How might that change the way whether or not we believe the best about someone else or give the benefit of the doubt to a brother or sister in Christ as opposed to immediately questioning their motives. I'm not talking about like throwing discernment out the window. I'm not talking about not being willing to to sharpen one another in the body of Christ by correction and calls to repentance. What I am saying is that if we are in Christ Jesus that every other identifying marker in our lives now comes second to our identity as disciples of Jesus. All of them. So our first and our primary identity is now a blood-bought son or daughter of God, our Father, and we are in one family. That's first. If you are in Christ, then you are one in Christ in the body. Now, Paul takes it one step further in Galatians chapter 3. The church in Galatia had already begun to separate out Jewish Christians from Gentile Christians. And Paul says, for as as many of you, Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul's making some pretty definitive statements here in Ephesians and Galatians. Now, in Galatians 3 in particular, is Paul saying that there is no such thing then as gender? He says no male or female. Well, well, that can't be because in Genesis we are told that God made man in his image Male and female, he created them. We are gendered beings that God has fashioned. Is Paul saying there's no such thing as distinctions in roles in relationship or society? He says, well, there's no slave or free. Well, that doesn't make sense either because in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible makes clear that husbands and wives, children and parents, employers, employees, Those who are from your native land, those who are foreigners in your land, pastors, elders, those who have civil authority in the land in which you live. The scriptures give many exhortations and instructions, and there are ways that we live within those relationships, in those roles to honor the Lord. So Paul's not saying it doesn't exist. Is is Paul saying there's no such thing as ethnicity? There's no Jew or Greek. Does that, none of that matter? No, that's silly. And the reason it's silly is because we can see the beauty and uniqueness of humanity in all kinds of ways. And none of that goes away when we become followers of Jesus. In fact, the picture we have in the scriptures of the new heavens and the new earth, the glorious, resurrected, future hope is full of a myriad of faces and voices and languages all singing one song, right? So Paul's not saying that these distinctions between male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free, he's not saying that they just go away, that they don't exist. They exist. 
But even though they exist, they are not to divide those who share an even greater bond as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Members of his body and members of one another, together heirs to all the promises of God. So let me ask this question. And maybe this is more of like a $10 question you're going to have to take with you today. What is your central identity? Are you able to center your life around your primary identity as a follower of Jesus? And by extension, you belong now to one another? Or do you tend to identify primarily by some other marker of your identity, your background or your politics or what you do? If you are in Christ Jesus, hear this exhortation that your primary identity is a shared identity, that you are one in Christ with everyone else who is also a new creation in Christ Jesus. And I think Paul's laying this foundation with Philemon to say, hey, don't mistake this, Philemon, if you and I, apostle, church member, if we are one in Christ, that matters. And that matters a lot. That's the first thing. Our new identity in Christ means that we are one in Christ Jesus. Here's the second thing we see in this text, that it's God at work in us. Look at what Paul says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. So Paul, in his prayers, as he's praying to God, Philemon's name pops into his head. And what Paul says is, oh God in heaven, I'm so thankful for what you are doing in and through Philemon. Verse 5, because I hear of your love and your faith. We have a little sandwich here where we see Paul write about his love for the saints and his faith in Christ. So Philemon's reputation here is well known. Paul addresses it. He's heard about Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus. He's seen it in action. There's evidence of Philemon's faith, his love for all the saints. Verse 7, for I have derived, I have taken, I have, I have much joy because of you, comfort from your love, my brother. For who? For the saints. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul is saying, the evidence that you have faith in Jesus, Philemon, is that you are overflowing and generous in your love towards your brothers and sisters of Christ. And I hear about it, and I'm encouraged. You have been a refreshing gift to the church, Philemon, and I'm grateful to God for you. Notice what Paul doesn't say. It's, it's nuanced. But Paul doesn't say, Philemon, I am thankful for your generosity. I'm thankful for your hard work, for your contributions to the church and the mission of God. He doesn't quite say it like that. 
Paul says, in my prayers, when I think of you, Philemon, when I think of all you've done for the sake of the gospel, I thank God. Why? Because Paul is zeroing in on our second kind of gospel reality here from these verses. That for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those whose primary identity is now Christ, everything good that comes from our hands has come from God. Now it's always like that. Everything that comes from our hands comes from God. Paul's just saying like, hey, Philemon, I just want to make sure you recognize that. God gets all the glory. And from what we can tell, this is Philemon's heart posture as well. There's not correction in, this, in these words. There's encouragement. God gets the glory, which means everything that we do, we do by faith in order to bring glory to God. There's some other things Paul says. We live by faith. It's by faith we are justified. In 2 Corinthians, he says we walk by faith talking about living our lives in a particular way. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, here it is, that we should walk in them. So everything about us, our identity, is now conformed and being conformed to Jesus. All that we are is now hidden in Christ. And we see everything that we have and everything that we do as extensions of this identity, this reality. That is, by faith... We have come to belong to Christ, and it's by faith we walk and work and live in him. So, our love for others, our faithfulness in serving, the using of our gifts, none of it is for our own glory, but it rolls up in praise and thanksgiving to God. The question that rises from that is, do you view everything as coming from God and going back to God? Or are you tempted, like I am sometimes, I want to carve out just like the littlest bit of credit for myself. Just, I mean, not a lot, just a little. Just this this little bit I'm going to put right here, right? Now, hear me. There's work to be done. (laughs) There's work to be done. Caleb reminded us last week from Proverbs chapter 10 that a slack hand and being asleep when it's time for harvest, no bueno. Not good. There's work to be done. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Paul's reminding the church in Philippi, he says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here it is. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is an act of faith. 
We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus, and because of that, everything in my life is different. Everything changes, and so now all my working, all my labor no longer comes from myself as the source. I'm not willpowering this. It comes as a result of God's work in and through me. So when I give, I give out of God's remarkable generosity to me. When I serve in whatever ways God's gifted me to serve, Because it's God who gave me a voice to sing or the mind to solve a problem or to create something beautiful or hands to change a tire or a diaper. God gave us all those things. Right? I love because he loved me first. So if you are in Christ Jesus, then everything that you do, you do by faith and to the glory of God. Now the reason... I wanted to kind of zero in on these realities today is because, like I said at the beginning, Paul's laying this groundwork, this foundation of gospel and the implications so that he can set on top of this foundation, this footing, application. He's going to call us, maybe uncomfortably, some of us, to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness for those who have wronged you. In particular, reconciliation with those with whom you are one in the body. And part of what I think will be really good for us as a people over the next few weeks in Philemon and just beyond that as we get into Jude uh, beyond that is that there's some really timely application of what we believe. Like, if we believe that the gospel is true, that God's word is true, then there is a contending for that truth, which requires us to live not by lies, but to hold fast to the good confession and to be held captive, not to the culture, but to the word of God. It's an application of what we believe. And if there is, here over the next two weeks, some application for us in this area of reconciliation that we're going to need as Christians in the context in which we live that is increasingly divided, that is increasingly segregated out by all sorts of secondary identities. I think we're going to need this. And like Paul's prayer in verse 6, that it would be true of us. Look at verse 6. Paul says that the sharing of our faith He's talking to Philemon. He says, your. I'm saying our. That the sharing of our faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That we would be a gospel-saturated people. That the fullness of the gospel the fullness of what it means to be in Christ, to be a new creation, the fullness of what it means to walk in the power of Christ, the fullness of what it means that we share now in all of the promises of Christ would be evident among us. And as Paul opens this letter to Philemon, I want us to, con- to anchor ourselves to this gospel foundation that by faith in Christ Jesus... We are completely transformed. Completely. And that means that everything about us 
conforms now to our identity in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of this gospel reality, that you've taken a people who were once far off and in fact your enemies and not only have sought your people out, but bought us back. And in purchasing us, because you purchased us by your own body, your own blood, in your body and blood, you have broken down every wall of hostility that would maybe have once stood between us because now we find ourselves as one in you. Holy Spirit, I pray you would solidify this gospel reality for us. That it would go deep. That it would cure well. And that by your grace, you'd build on top of that beautiful example of your goodness on display in the life of your people. Would you encourage us afresh as we come to the communion table? As we look upon the the beauty, the cost of our purchasing? That you anchor us afresh to this identity we have now in you. Encourage your church as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.